Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Greenhorns Radio, and I'm your host, Severin, coming to you today from Point Reyes, California, and joined on the phone by Dan, who's a cooperator down in the Rocky Mountain region. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for being there. Um, let's get right started because we have much to cover. Uh, first, maybe we could just start with where you are in the world. What's the agricultural heritage of your part of the world? What kind of weather are you having now, and what do you do there? Okay, yeah, we're located in southeastern Colorado in the Arkansas River Valley. Um, about elevation 4,600 feet. Uh, consider, so, consider ourselves really part of the southwest, uh, and we're along the front range of Colorado, also about two hours south of Denver. Um, the Arkansas River was the historic border between old Mexico and Colorado territory way back when, so we're kind of on the very northern end of uh, old Mexico, if you will. Uh, the northernmost uh, Mexican land grants are in this region and culturally uh, very tied to Hispanic traditions. Also had a lot of uh, Italian farmers move into the region in the late 1800s, uh, people with real, very strong uh, vegetable farming backgrounds. Um, it's really a vegetable farming community that we're in. There's about 20,000 irrigated acres here in Pueblo County and um, we grow oh, a lot of warm weather crops, uh, a lot of peppers, tomatoes, uh, cucurbits, all kinds of squashes, melons, um, uh, a lot of garlic, um, onions, a whole variety of things, but not much in the way of uh, brassicas down here at this low elevation. So you guys are irrigating um, in, the, in this drought and irrigating those acreages to grow hot, loving vegetables. Tell me a little bit about your experience of the drought as a grower and um, maybe a bit about the history of irrigation development in that region and the traditions around that. Oh, great question. Uh, let's see. So I think it was uh, when, when Zebulon Pike first came into this area, explored it in about 1806, he declared that it was absolutely unfit for agriculture. It's, uh, it's an arid steppe climate. Um, you know, annual rainfall, average annual rainfall, they say, is about 12 inches. Um, frankly, it's probably more like about 8 inches a year. Uh, very few trees grow in the area unless they're along uh, irrigation canals or uh, near rivers. So it's really uh, water from the Rocky Mountains that allows there to be a farming community here. Um, so... 1890s, there was, uh, throughout Colorado, there were what we call mutual ditch companies were formed, and these were um, basically farmers who got together 
assessed themselves for the uh, maintenance and development of these irrigation ditches. And it was also uh, notably uh, a move to try to ward off speculation. There was a lot of people uh, looking for land and water, and so the farmers did a great job of locking up a lot of these these old ditches and securing them in these in these very locally uh, operated ditch companies. So we're on the Bessemer Ditch here, which is the uh, third oldest irrigation ditch in Colorado. Uh, it is uh, 1866 priority, right, somewhere in there. Um, you might know we work on a priority uh, system here, which means uh, oldest water uh, gives first right of use, and uh, junior water rights often in dry years will get hauled out of priority. So Bessemer Ditch has a, a great priority right, and um, and again, it's uh, you know we're near the Rockies. The the water comes out of snow melt and spring fed uh, streams and rivers, and we've got very mineral rich uh, soil down here. So when you apply that water to the mineral rich soil, boy, it'll just grow about anything. It's a very very fine agricultural region, and um, yeah, and again, if if it, if it weren't for the irrigation, uh, we wouldn't be here. In fact, there probably wouldn't be here much here at all. Uh, and then, uh, lastly, I'll just say that uh, we've got about an average or slightly above average snowpack this year in the Rockies. And so, down here on the high plains where we're located, we've seen very low moisture uh, for really the last three years. Uh, but we've got good snowpack in the mountains, so it, it appears it's going to be a good farming year. Well, that's really good news for everyone involved. Um, let's let's get a little bit into your operation and the work that you're doing there, facilitating cooperation on a re- micro regional and meso um, regional scale. Um, how did you get started in cooperation? Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. I'm actually a fifth generation. Denver kid and uh, been teaching myself to farm all my life. I'm uh, 45 now and um, finally hitting a good stride here uh, lately. But the uh, our operation is about 30 irrigated acres and we grow mixed vegetables and seeds. And alongside of that, um, I've been involved in, in farm organizing for uh, approximately 20 years now. And, and the way I... Um, I got involved in that was uh, really through, as a teenager, doing some work in South America with some agricultural communities in, in Paraguay and uh, Ecuador, and uh, that that introduced me to uh, agrarian people and agrarian lifestyle, and uh, really enjoyed it. So as soon as I uh, graduated from uh, from high school, I started pursuing uh, work in agriculture, and in the late 1990s. Um, while farming in New Mexico, I became associated with the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union, which runs a cooperative development center. And uh, I've been a field person on and off since the late 90s with the Farmers Union, uh, helping farm uh, form farmer-rancher co-ops, mostly in uh, New Mexico and Colorado. Um, so we uh, have just published a new guidebook called Farming Cooperatively, um, which is a SARE-funded Grant booklet guidebook that's free to download on the Greenhorns website, and so we've been learning about all the different kinds of cooperatives that farmers form. 
Um, but maybe you could take us through just a couple of those, um, and especially around, especially around the kinds of equipment that we're all looking at needing as we rebuild the infrastructure for regional food. What role do cooperatives play in empowering farmers to get access to that equipment? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I just got a hold of this this guidebook about a week ago. It's a great document. Congratulations to you guys. Nice, uh, nice piece of work, and I've already shared it around with with lots of other folks. Um, you know, the cooperative model is uh, is very old. Um, the modern cooperative movement um, really began in, in uh, with the Rochdale pioneers in uh, in England, a group of uh, weavers that got together to try to secure better prices for food. Uh, co-ops have been utilized in the United States since uh, at least the 1840s with some uh, dairy and butter cooperatives in the, um, in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, Farmers Union has been working with the cooperative model for approximately 100 years. We primarily work with, uh, with producer-owned co-ops, uh, these tend to be marketing and distribution type co-ops of, you know, small producers getting together to aggregate production and then, uh, and then get it out to multiple marketplaces, uh, basically doing together what they can't do alone. And, uh, but we also work with worker co-ops and service type co-ops, um, consumer co-ops like your good old, uh, you know, food co-ops. Uh, so your uh, the question about the equipment co-op is uh, is an interesting one. Uh, a lot of the small uh, minority and resource limited producers that we work with in this region uh, lack all kinds of infrastructure. As we know, there's there's already tons of barriers uh, to get into farming. But this equipment one is a is a tough one uh, for a lot of us. And so uh, what we've been doing uh, in this region is working with um, we've got a, a food hub that we've started here in Pueblo County that we call the Excelsior Farmers Exchange. Uh, it's located in Old Middle School. And uh, so that, this is how our local co-op is, um, is tackling that question, is by um, housing that equipment at the food hub. Um, this includes uh, seed cleaning equipment that farmers can take out to their farms, and it also includes fixed equipment at the facility itself, like um, a vegetable washing line, for example. Uh, we have not done much in the way of sharing tractors and tillage equipment because in our research we've just found that it's, um, it's pretty tough to manage uh, transporting that stuff around and also dealing with co uh, conflicting schedules. If you've got growers in the same region, for example, they're growing wheat. Everybody's wheat needs to come off at the same time. You've just got some some real challenges uh, as far as scheduling. So, so we've we've uh, elected to really work with uh, equipment sharing and uh, with with specialty type items. Um, so, for example, a, a belt thresher, which we use to thresh tomato or rather um, humble seeds like um, leeks and onions and and carrots and that type of thing. And it's a small unit that can fit in the back of a pickup truck and easily be taken around from farm to farm. So it's uh, equipment sharing is a great idea. It takes a little bit of organization, um, but we've been fairly su successful in uh, obtaining some USDA as well as some private grants to support that kind of work. 
cooperation makes it happen. So as you're thinking about the seeds that you're saving and cleaning and growing and planting and presumably breeding, can you talk about some of the characteristics that you're looking at, uh, especially in your region, as far as adapting to the changes that you're seeing in the climate and maybe reflect a little bit on how self-determination within a region is a potentially a critical prerequisite to, to having a, a sensible breeding program. Mm. Yeah, the, the seed work is, is, is very dynamic, and it seems like it was a little bit left behind in the growth of um, uh, the organic and local food movement, but it's really uh, picking up now interest all over the country and some very, very great projects going on in all regions. Uh, we're especially uh, proud of the uh, quality of the seed that we produce here. A lot of that has to do, again, with the mineral-rich soils that we have, hot days, cool nights, um, also the uh, the lack of um, uh, disease. Uh, you know, we have very little moisture that falls from the sky, uh, so we apply irrigation, you know, really uh, down in the root zone of the plants, and, and so that helps with seed quality. Um, and, in fact, the region here, what we call the Lower Arkansas River Basin has a long history of seed production, uh, especially with what we call the wet-seeded crops, and these are uh, crops that have the seeds uh, inside of fruit, so peppers, tomatoes, watermelons, um, melons, eggplants. We really do well uh, with that stuff, as well as with um, with carrots and onions. And In fact, down in uh, Rocky Ford, which is about 20 miles, 25 miles down the road from us, uh, there were many seed houses. Uh, a lot of these have have become extinct, unfortunately, but there's still uh, a number of seed varieties that have been bred in the valley here, adapted to this uh, to this region, improved in this region. And um, a couple uh, notable ones are the Pueblo chili, which is a, a Mirasol roasting pepper, which is uh, no offense to all of our friends down in New Mexico, but it's good or better than any New Mexican chili you've ever had. <laughs> And uh, and also a Valencia onion that was bought, brought over uh, in the 1920s by the the Burl Seed Company and was um, developed into the what we call the Colorado Number no. Six, which is a beautiful Spanish sweet onion that's uh, thrip resistant and uh, just a, a terrific keeper and a good baker and fresh eater. Um, so uh, so here at our our operation at Hobbs Family Farm, we grow approximately 50, 60 varieties of seed. Uh, we focus on the wet-seeded crops and then the carrots and leeks and onions. Um, and, and really the selection criteria that we're using is um, we're trying to adapt these, these crops to uh, the semi-arid regions. It's uh, really our kind of niche and focus here. And so we're, um, uh, we irrigate... Uh, despite the fact that we get up around 100 degrees, um, you know, for a for number of weeks in July, uh, we irrigate only every 10 days, and we're really uh, irrigate deeply every 10 days, and we're we're really training those um, those seeds to adapt to those those kinds of uh, conditions. So, so that's probably the primary thing is um, is getting these seeds sort of ready for semi-arid conditions, and then we also are just very interested in in um, Seeds that are ready for prime time for commercial and market growers, uh, things that are going to perform well um, 
for small organic growers, uh, kind of specialty items for farmers markets and CSAs. Um, and then we've got a lot of uh, love growing the sort of uh, indigenous crops to this region, uh, Hopi black bean, for example, uh, bolita bean, which is a Spanish bean, grows up uh, at high elevations, um, some uh, fava beans that have been grown in the Spanish communities around here for 150 years or better. Uh, so that's that's a few of the things we're working on as far as the seed. And do you see any parallels? I've just been studying the history of the Grange movement and the resistance to the railroad monopolies in the 1860s and 70s, and the Grangers successfully mobilized um, as a populist resistance against those monopolies. And from that economic critique arose a really strong and renewed uh, cooperative movement in this country. So to me, listening to you, it's hard not to make the parallel of seed saving, uh, local seed sovereignty and seed breeding programs, cooperation as a really powerful antidote to a lot of the systemic uh, crises that face our food system. Uh, how do you see yourself in that work? Boy, well said. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels between the, uh, you know, 18, 1870s, 1880s, and then the 20s and 30s, and then this period of time we're in now, um, you know, with these uh, corporate entities that have consolidated so many, you know, aspects of, of our economy and culture. Uh, the, you know, the seed... Uh, agricultural seed has been consolidated faster than any natural resource um, there is. Uh, you know, uh, large corporations control a vast majority of the of the world seed, and um, there is a very vibrant movement uh, afoot now to take the seed back and um, and and produce it in, a, in sort of a bioregional basis. Um, and one of the specific projects that we worked on uh, in, in, um, with the Organic Seed Alliance and with, uh, also with partners in the Organic uh, Seed Growers and Trade Association is the uh, Family Farmer Seed Cooperative. And this is a, this is a group of uh, Western seed growers who have, like us, with Farm Direct Organic Seed, that's our little enterprise, um, have, have their own sort of regionally-based, um, farm-based seed companies. And so a lot of uh, these groups are banding together within the Family Farmer Seed Cooperative uh, to both serve their local communities, but also uh, serve uh, you know, a national market of, of other farmers and growers. So that's just one example of, of a, you know, a farmer-based um, uh, movement to, to, to try to take back uh, control of the seed. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, with the numbers of young people coming into agriculture, uh, I think we've finally got some momentum to really have some uh, systemic uh, change uh, happen here over the next years. Uh, I'm very excited about it. I'm excited, too, and I want to point all our listeners to a short film that we just released in the Ourland um, web film series. You can find them at ourland.tv. And it's a new film. It's called Adaptive Seeds. Oh, no, the new one is not called Adaptive Seeds. We already have one about local breeding 
um, programs and new uh, new enterprises that are establishing themselves. But the newest one is called Access to Grazing. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Um, but you can find it there, and I hope you will. And I want to give you a chance to make any announcements that you have, so think if you have any, and I'm going to make mine in the meantime. Um, Greenhorns continues to have many events, and the next one is in the end of April. It's a symposium on land access, land reform, land transfer. We have pretty much the biggest names in the country on this topic, and they're all going to come and talk, and then we're going to have it all recorded as a podcast. So if you don't want to leave your greenhouse, you can just sign up for the Agrarian Trust mailing list, and you'll get the podcast announcement. And then other things to know is that in May, we have the May 3rd, we have another negotiation training, training yourself to negotiate with land partners, with landlords, with lenders, with banks, with cooperators, with others. Uh, It's a full-day training offered in upstate New York, again, as part of Agrarian Trust. So I'll see you soon. And any announcements from you, Dan? Well, maybe just a couple. If anybody's interested in uh, starting a cooperative of, of any sort, there's uh, cooperative development centers all across the country. Uh, ours here through the Farmers Union serves Colorado, New Mexico, and Wyoming. Uh, available anytime to talk with folks about co-ops. Uh, RMFU.org is the website. Uh, and then, with respect to the seed, yeah, please check out uh, Family Farmer Seed Co-op. It's uh, organic seed co-op. Dot com, uh, no hyphen and co-op, so it's spelled coop, organicseedcoop.com, and then uh, also our little bioregional seed enterprise, farmdirectseed.com, and thanks a million for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.